We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right In April 2016, the Australian government entered into a very weird contract with the French company DCNS to convert DCNS's nuclear-powered submarine model into a diesel-powered submarine for the Royal Australian Navy. DCNS had to know that even if they were able to get a submarine that had been designed as a nuclear-powered submarine into a working diesel-powered submarine, the results would most likely be pitiful. The Australian government experts who went with this French submarine really had to know that too. It would have been easier for Australia to buy a tank and convert it into a jet fighter. So you have to marvel at how in November 1940, during the dark days of World War II, when it looked like Hitler had won the war, that Australia, which didn't even have a car industry back in the day, decided to design and build a tank. It turned out to be one of the best tanks in the world at that time. This incredible, successful story is told for the first time in detail in a book written by Kansas' own Jason Belgrave at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum at Smithfield. And I have him here with me in the studio today for this and the next program to tell us about his book and this amazing story of the Australian tank called The Sentinel. And the book, by the way, is available from the museum and from Jabiru Publishing. Hi, I'm Paul Fordyce and this is The Danger Zone and I'm here today with a special guest, uh, Jason Belgrave, who is the assistant manager at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum at Smithfield, just next to Skyrail. And, uh, but Jason is um, more than just the assistant manager at the uh, museum. He has some hands-on experience with tanks, haven't you, Jason? Could you tell us briefly about that? Yeah, certainly have. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Paul. Um, so, basically, uh, I joined the uh, the Army straight out of high school in 1989. Um, and from previous experience with Army cadets, I knew, obviously, that tanks were out there. You know, Australia had tanks. So, when I joined up, I applied to go to the Royal Australian Army Corps um, and start off in tanks. So, probably, was it in February of 1990, um, I went to the School of Armour and was trained up on tanks and then joined the 1st Armoured Regiment uh, later that year. So I ended up doing uh, about 12 years uh, in tanks. I ended up commanding my own tank in 1996-97 uh, and then from there uh, spent a couple of years with uh, the Armoured Command Vehicles, and commanding that one, and then... Uh, after that, I got transferred and did another 12 years with Ordnance Corps, so I did about 24 years all up. And you, you did some service overseas, didn't you, um, in, in Iraq? Yeah, so in 2007, uh, I was lucky to be deployed as part of the Force Level Logistics Asset, which was located in Baghdad. So we provided uh, all the, uh, the service 
to the troops in theatre, uh, especially with the uh, the embassy guys and all that sort of stuff as well. But when it comes to sort of, you know, I sort of had an armour background, so being in that location gave me the, um, sort of the, the ability to have a look at uh, some of the Iraqi armour that they, uh, they had there. Um, and a notable part of that was uh, when you actually take a drive out to where the Ba'ath Party headquarters was, there was four T-72s in box formation. Now, these have all been engaged uh, by the M1 Abrams. Um, so, literally, there, there's no comparison, uh, you know, technology speaking, uh, between those two tanks. So, it gave me a good insight into, uh, you know, West uh, versus, uh, you know, sort of Soviet-developed uh, tanks and... Uh, what the technology gap was. And what did you what did you see the strengths and weaknesses of um, the, uh, their tanks against ours? Well, with Soviet era, they go for a uh, a tank that is you know lower in silhouette. Uh, they have an auto loader where we have a manual loader. So our turrets, essentially, on the western side, tend to be a little bit uh, higher than a Soviet era one, which unfortunately for the Soviets it doesn't give them very good depression or elevation within their vehicles as well. So Western tanks in their design generally have more elevation, more depression in, in the gun, and our ammunition and armour packages are generally a, a lot better in speaking uh, compared to the Soviet era. And have you always lived in the Cairns area, Jason, or have you come from somewhere else originally? Yeah, so I was uh, spent most of my time up in Darwin in, in the Army, um, so when I got out in sort of the end of uh, 2013, I moved to Cairns uh, from Darwin in 2014. Um, and it was re- really interesting because when I, we were here, we were literally on holidays to start off with, I saw a sign uh, for the uh, Armour and Ice Swimming Museum that said, coming soon in 2014. So I thought, oh, this is interesting. So I sent a message to the, uh, the Facebook page because it had the little Facebook symbol down there, explained my background and asked if there was any way I could assist. So Rob, uh, who I'd never met, uh, sent me a message back and asked me to come in the following Saturday. And suffice to say, I've been with him ever since. No, it's a fabulous museum out there. It's got unbelievable um, exhibits. You've got a display, I noticed, the other day when I picked up my daughter from um, flying up from uh, Sydney to Cairns at the um, domestic terminal for the arrivals. You've got a, a display of a, an armoured vehicle and what you've got there. I... I, I, I I think a lot of people would be staggered to see Tigers and Panther tanks from Germany in World War Two. So, um, yeah, just um, world class. Now, Australia did something amazing in World War Two, um, especially when you look at the French submarine contract that we've done just recently. <laughs> we um, actually designed a, a piece of equipment, a tank, and you have an interest in that tank, and you've you've written a book on it, haven't you? I certainly have. So. We've got a couple of different variants. So the Sentinel, or the Australian cruiser tank, uh, was a tank obviously designed and built in Australia during World War II. So in principle, it was using design characteristics from both uh, American and English design uh, philosophies uh, when they designed it. And what made you write a book about this tank? Is there much much other material out there at the you know at the at, before when you wrote your book? Oh, good question. So. After the museum received uh, an AC-1, so it was uh, donated by the, the World of Tanks franchise, so this was a tank that was here in Australia, went over to America, uh, was then sold off to the World of Tanks franchise. But when their lease ran out to where they had it, 
uh, they had to sort of move the vehicle, so they wanted to bring it back to Australia. So they rang up. I actually took the phone call and uh, said, you know, they said, do you want this tank? And I went, of course we do. Um, so with this tank, I found there was a there was information out there on the Sentinel, but there was a lot of gaps uh, in the information regarding, you know, the key features that make up a tank, which is, you know, its mobility, its firepower and protection. Uh, so other World War Two tanks, uh, especially American-built, uh, British-built, have their, you know, their fair share of books written on them. Um, but I always found that the, uh, the Australian cruiser tank was, uh, you know, left wanting. Um, so that's when I decided decided to uh, start researching to write a book. Now, a cruiser tank isn't a term that's used for tanks these days. Um, what does it mean? So the cruiser tank is also, and this comes down to terminology from the country of origin. So a cruiser tank or a cavalry tank was classed either by its weight or its role. Uh, and when it's used in conjunction with, say, heavier infantry tanks, let's say, you know, the Matilda or the Churchill, uh, the cruiser tank is a lot faster, um, so it can exploit, uh, you know, the, the areas uh, due to its speed. And did you, um, did you know about the Sentinel tank when you got the call? Have you ever seen one? Yeah, well, yeah, so being an Armoured Corps, I knew of the Australian Cruiser Tank because the Puckapaniel Tank Museum, uh, where we did our training, uh, had one in its collection. So I knew of its existence, um, but obviously when the museum acquired this one, uh, I started to take a little bit more interest in it, and uh, then it became apparent that there was a, a lack of detailed information on the Cruiser Tank. Um, and it's not until you look you know, sort of in the archives, you get to piece it all together. Are there any cruiser tanks that are, are drivable in the world at the moment? But there's only really the one at the moment. So the Puckapaniel Tank Museum, they had theirs last running in 1991. So they're in the process at the moment of having all three engines um, rebuilt. Uh, so they've got a complete drive line, as does ours. So they're at a point now where they've got the engines done and now they're looking at the other and you know sort of systems you know like cooling and all that as well so i'm hoping that they will have theirs up and running you know sort of in uh, 2023 and uh, you you've been looking into this tank what for 5 years before you wrote the book yeah pretty much uh, on and on and off for 5 years obviously with uh, you know the museums although that takes precedence uh, so you know, in my spare time, uh, I've been looking into uh, the archives and, and other, you know, sort of different information sources around just to try and piece all this together. So, yeah, it's been about five years. So what are the main sources um, of the information you got on the tank? So mainly from the National Archives of, of Australia, um, the Australian War Memorial. Uh, there's also a book called uh, Fallen Sentinel, written by Peter Beale. Uh, there's another series of books uh, called The Role of Science and Industry, and that's by David Meller. Uh, so in particular, you know, he's, um, I think, uh, num book number 14 out of that series sort of covers the, the Australian cruiser tank and sort of other tanks as well. So it sort of, sort of only gives you a, a snapshot of it, but it, um, in itself it's still a fairly good source of information. And then I had to sort of go outside the box. So when I look at the people involved in making uh, the cruiser tank, 
So when we look at the archives itself, most of the archives will only give you uh, the initials of the person and their surname. It very rarely gives you a background of where they come from uh, to be working for the military. So I spent a lot of time looking at where these people worked previously, getting their full names rather than just an initial. Uh, so in the book, it actually gives you a sort of more in-depth look at the people involved as well. Now, I, I, I do a free guided tour at the museum on Saturday mornings at 10.30, and one time when I was there, I was talking to you, and you said you got some photographs from an unexpected source, someone that was at the museum, I think. Yeah. So that was just a, a lucky score on the day. I was talking to a fellow on his way out of the museum, and he sort of said to me, he goes, oh, on the Australian cruiser tank there's you know, some numbers and some, some letters. He goes, is that sort of Bradford Kendall? I said, yeah. And so I, I told him about it, and I said I was writing a book, and he sort of said, looked at me and said, listen, I've got a mate who's got some photos of the Australian cruiser tank. Um, so I gave him my business card and said, listen, can you pass it on and get this guy to contact me? So he, he contacted me fairly quickly. So what had happened was in mid-1943, when the project uh, for the Australian cruiser tank uh, ceased, there was a photo album that they'd obviously taken photos of uh, that was located in Melbourne. Now, at the end of the project, this photo album was thrown in a bin. Now, one of the scientists who was down there retrieved it and from there, it's since been passed on um, in this sort of lineage of, of scientists working for DSTO. Um, so they've had the, all the photos scanned on the disc for me and sent it up. So there's some photos that have essentially never been seen before. They're not even in the archives. So these are photos that were just literally discarded, saved by a scientist, and have uh, sort of ended up in, uh, in my hands. And now that they're uh, they're in the book as well, that was um, a pretty amazing lucky strike, wasn't it? Oh, it certainly was. There's some really some rich photos of the um, the casting of the tank, the pouring of the mould, coming out of the mould, going through the heat treatment process. So there's some really good um, you know uh, photos within within the book that have uh, you know not been published anywhere else. Given the given the time that's passed since this, um, I, I guess you haven't met anyone that was actually a hands-on with the tank driving and designing and so on. No, I've, I've had a lot of people come in over the years to say that their relatives were involved in one way or another um, within the museum, and you know you sort of say, you know, listen, can you provide any more information? Is there any photos, any manuscripts, anything like that? So. I've really only had the, the one photo album. I've had a fellow come in and said, oh, you know, my grandfather worked on the Australian cruise tank Mark IV, which is the 17-pounder variant, but again, it's, um, you know, nothing's really, really come from it. Did, um, uh, why did Australia at the time, was um, when, when this tank was design was undertaken, was a fairly basic country industrially, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, a lot of our... Industry itself, you know, we had a good you know, steel industry, uh, which was, um, you know, sort of set up, you know, in the late, from the sort of the late 30s, we had a, a fairly good steel industry, both the uh, BHP um, and one other company that were located at uh, Newcastle. Um, so, but when it comes to the tooling side of it, that's where we sort of lacked 
um, a lot of experience in the manufacturing process. So we actually got a lot of our tooling uh, sent to us by the Americans. And why was it that Australia decided to design its own tank at this time? So the Australians at that time were fighting in North Africa. Um, and at the time it came from experience uh, from the commanders on the ground. So at that stage we had uh, General Ivan uh, Mackey, who was uh, in North Africa. Um, and then we also had the likes of Major Lewis Burnham, who was um, like a liaison officer as such um, to Major General North- Northcott. So we had those two people in theatre who seen what we needed um, and come to the conclusion that we needed our own tanks to support our own troops. Uh, the only problem was there was no short-term prospects to get any tanks from you know, the, the UK or the US at that time. Did Australia have a car building industry at this time or it didn't? No. So our car building industry really didn't kick off until about 1948. Uh, so we had no automotive industry prior to that. So 1948, we obviously saw the first Holden come off the line um, in November, um, which is interesting because one of the fellows, Essington Lewis, he was the uh, wartime director of munitions. So GMH at the time actually offered him this first car off the Australian production line free of charge uh, for his work in Defence of Australia. But um, he declined the offer and he actually purchased the first holding off the off the, uh, the line. And that car is still around and it's in the National Museum of Australia. The, the classic Holdens. Um, so people involved in the des- design and development of this tank were Australians who had been serving in, in North Africa, so they knew what the position was with German tanks compared to British tanks. What was what was? Did they have any concerns about the British tanks that they were being given? So when we look at uh, the people on the ground, so they can see what tanks are capable of. And as we sort of say in the West side, you know, tanks save lives on particularly our side because you have an increase in firepower, you've got manoeuvrability. So with the number of senior officers that I've got listed in the book, um, you know, obviously some from served during the World War One, but the designs from World War One had you know, had to change dramatically from, you know, that rhomboid style of tank. Um, so we now we've got a highly mobile war now, so it's all mechanised, so we needed new ideas, um, and, of course, those ideas need to be uh, tested as well. And the, um, the, I think the British cruiser tanks had terrible mechanical problems. Yes, some of them didn't, and this is where it comes to uh, design and development where you've got most, generally most tanks from design right through to production generally take about two years. With our Australian cruiser tank, um, you know, from design uh, to production took just under two years and when we actually started uh, making these tanks, it only took about 11 months uh, before we actually got the first one off the uh, production line. So... Along with that, we have a lot of British officers uh, that were loaned um, by um, the British Imperial staff to come over. So there was two officers uh, in particular that uh, you know got sent over in the, uh, the early 40s to help us out. Uh, Colonel William Douglas, one of them? Yeah, so William Douglas Watson. Um, he's an interesting character because in the archives, 
you'll only ever see WD Watson. Um, so I spent uh, a lot of time trying to find out who this fella was, uh, and I took an email to the uh, British uh, officer archives uh, to find out who he was, and they, they were actually uh, pretty forthcoming. They sent me a, his full bio, uh, essentially within a couple of hours. And now this guy was uh, an artillery officer in World War One, but obviously he sort of had a mechanical background, so he was... Uh, sort of classed by the British as being a tank design expert as such. Uh, but you've also got uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Leslie Pittock Crouch. Uh, he was another one that they sent over. He was uh, an officer with the Royal Tank Regiment, so he had that experience as well um, with operating the tanks. The um, Australia had, um, as we said, limited um, resources and so on, and uh, how did we get an engine for this tank? Oh, yeah, engines were a, uh, an interesting uh, sort of problem that we, we started coming up against. So the, there was a number of different t- types of engines. Now, these range from radial petrol engines, so essentially an aircraft engine. We had radial diesels uh, that we could choose from as well, and then we also had petrol v 8 so each engine type had their challenges uh, and obviously to either obtain or build under licence. Um, the end result was that uh, V8 Cadillacs, which were plentiful in supply in the US, uh, were available um, and we got a good deal basically on a, uh, a bulk purchase uh, for, these, for these engines. So the Cadillacs were essentially to be used as uh, an interim solution until something better come along. Do we ever build these engines in Australia or were they all imported? So with the V8 Cadillacs, we also imported them from America. But one of the engines that we did build here in Australia was uh, called a Quad Gypsy. Now, these were used in the Tiger Moth um, as well. So we had... Uh, essentially four engines uh, in H-pattern that could all be uh, connected together um, and actually gave us good horsepower as well. Uh, we also had the uh, single-row WASP radial. Now, these were also being used in the Wiraway uh, plane as well. The um, What was the configuration of the engines in the Sentinel? There were three, weren't there? In... Yeah, so three V8s in cloverleaf formation. So as we're looking at the front of the tank, in the engine bay you've got two engines left and right and then behind that one but centrally located was another engine. Now these were connected by uh, uh, shafts into a three-into-one transfer case and then from there, from the transfer case via prop shaft to the uh, front uh, gearbox. It sounds very complicated. Did it work well? Oh, absolutely. So the, the engines themselves, we, you can either drive the tank on, obviously, all three engines, two engines, or one engine. Obviously, uh, you know, you start cutting out engines for whatever reason, you start losing a lot of horsepower. But you can disconnect um, an engine from the, uh, the transfer case. So if you have uh, an engine that's overheating, you can simply just disconnect the, uh, the prop shaft and keep going. So good idea. It wasn't until later on we had a a French fellow called Robert Perrier. Uh, he was actually working for the Japanese military right up until 
1939, I think it was. Now, he flew over, uh, sorry, not sorry, he came over a boat ship with his wife and daughter, and he immediately started working uh, for the um, Australian military. Now, he redesigned these uh, V8s from cloverleaf to a, a type of a, a radial situation. So you had uh, the three engines on uh, one crankcase as such, and then you had the one prop shaft come out, So and you, then you didn't need the three-in-one transfer case either. So essentially by taking that link out, which was the transfer case, we actually gave the engines more horsepower as well. I think during World War Two, the materials needed to make good quality armour changed a lot, and Australia, I think, didn't have all of the materials that would have been ideal. Um, what, what happened with the armour on the Sentinel? Yeah, so when we look at uh, BHP, essentially, they designed uh, the armour package uh, for the Australian cruiser tank. You know, so we've got the likes of George Bishop um, and William Herskovich. So normally armour would be strengthened using nickel. Um, however, there were no nickel deposits in Australia. Uh, the closest one, I think, was New Caledonia. But even then, even if we did get nickel, we didn't have the process to refine it as well. But what we did have in Australia was... Well, that's for the next program. The amazing and highly successful workaround that Australia came up with to give it the ability to make armour for its brand new tanks. Let's continue next week with Jason Belgrave and the story of the Australian Sentinel tank recorded in his new book, The Australian Cruiser Tank, which is available from the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum. You can buy it from the online shop or from Jabiru Publishing, the people who published the book.